Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Aw, that's us. Hi, I'm Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist and a folklorist and a friend to the universe. Um, yes, that's it. I, I was <laughs> mentally going over if there was anything else I needed to say Any in this it. intro, but that's all. That's mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And I'm Kurt Caputo, a writer, um, funny person, and friend to the universe. And I have nothing to add either. <laughs> Great. Uh, introduction over. Finished. Complete. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Corinne, where are we today? Okay, I love where we are. We time traveled today, and we are in an old-timey newsroom. You can hear um, some typewriters clacking and the bustle of people and papers, because we're mm-hmm. here to talk about messages today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is the episode where we reveal to you that we also have a time machine. Yeah, huge um, twist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Corinne, are we in any particular decade, or have we turned on the quantum dial of the yeah. time machine so that we're actually just in, like, many moments of the yes. past at once? Okay. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to explain that so concisely. <laughs> so we are um, in an old-timey newsroom from, like, the 30s to the 50s? Yeah, that's the, like, clothing aesthetic, but it's kind of like the Disney version of it where, like, everyone's happy and cheery and nothing that went bad in that decade actually did. You're right. We can't hear any protests yes. outside. <laughs> no one is fighting for any rights, and no. there are definitely not any wars being fought um, uh, across any oceans. It's just the happy bustle of wherever we are. We are everywhere and nowhere. And we are every time and no time. <laughs> yes. All at once. Uh, great. Uh, thank you for choosing this location, Corinne. Thank you for uh, taking our time machine out of the dusty corner in yeah. the multitude office. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but today we, we have traveled through time and space to talk to you about messages, uh, messages that humanity has been sending out into space in the hope of communicating with aliens, with extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, wherever it may be, or if it may be at all. Um, So, you know, we've talked about SETI before, Mm -hmm. the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but along with that, there's also METI, which is messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, but with a C, which is communicating with extraterrestrial intelligence. And these are um, words that you'll probably hear us use in the rest of the episode. I didn't know SETI had sisters yeah it does That's have so fun sisters um maybe maybe adopted sisters they're not formally mm-hmm. uh connected through any sort of like official you know they didn't they didn't send any documents to the government saying that uh Medi and SETI are going to be working together it's not yeah. a branch of the nonprofit organization that is the SETI institute mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Um, But today we're going to be thinking about a a really interesting question. How do you possibly represent all of humanity, all of our uh, characteristics, all of our history, all of our goodwill, maybe, that we want to send out into the universe? Uh, And how do you communicate that in a way that could be understood by aliens? Um, Yeah. Hmm. That's a lot to ask. ask. It seems like a pretty hard um, target to hit. And today we're going to talk about the different ways that people have tried to hit that target, starting with um, one thing that I I found in my research that never actually got done. But just the fact that someone wanted to do this 
tickles me to no end. Um, so back in the 1800s, an Austrian astronomer came up with the idea to send a message to the, the distant solar system objects by <laughs> essentially making like a big crop circle. But uh, instead of crops, uh, he wanted to write out a message in fire in the Sahara Desert. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it never got done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this plan was never carried out, but it was, a, a, I think, an interesting thought experiment. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, I'm thinking of the aerial shots we have of, like, forest fires, and it's largely smoke and, like, combination mm-hmm. of red and flame. And I don't think that a letter or symbol or what would have been visible but i i love the creativity <laughs> right we had to start somewhere yeah uh, so all of the other things that we have done i can assure you they were at least less stupid than that idea <laughs> <laughs> um uh, the judgmental side is coming out today okay so the first real attempt the first attempt that made any sort of sense the first attempt that used technology to try and communicate with aliens was in 1962 um, is that later or earlier than you expected? Hmm. That's probably right on track. It's like pre going to the moon, but not mm. so far early that, I mean, we were occupied with war and whatnot before that. So I feel like, yeah, this, this tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this was one of maybe the opening volleys to the space race mm-hmm. um, because it was the the USSR. It was the Soviet Union that was doing this. So in 1962, the Soviet Union had scientists send a message in Morse code to Venus. These scientists were trying to test a kind of new radar facility that they had built. Um, that radar facility had a, a machine that could send radio waves and receive them. That's how radar works. You send off radio waves, you wait for those waves to bounce off of something uh, and reflect back to you, and then you can measure how far away that object is. They were pointing this radar at Venus, which was too far away for them to accurately measure the distance to Venus, but it was just a test. So using Morse code, they sent three words to Venus. Uh, The first was mir, which is the Russian word for peace or world. Uh, And Lenin, who was like controlling (laughs) the the (laughs) Soviet Union at the time. And then uh, like, I think it was the Cyrillic letters for USSR. Three words communicated in Morse code towards Venus. Um, It went to Venus, bounced off the surface of the planet, and reflected back to the station four and a half minutes later. They did this a couple of times. Venus moves. Um, Mm. Also, the the radio signal gets diluted as it travels bigger distances. So it wasn't exactly four and a half minutes each time, but roughly. Mm And the message continues because the radio waves, these light waves, they spread out and they continue to move through the universe. Um, So they have been going for 60-something years, and they are headed in the direction of the Libra constellation, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, That constellation is slightly south. It's, I think, 15 degrees south, and it's overhead in late spring or summer. So that's the direction that mm-hmm. the, it's called the Morse message, that the, yeah. the Morse message is going in. If someone texted me that, I would not understand what's going on. 
Like tomorrow, I'm just gonna text you. Peace sign. <laughs> peace sign. Lenin. Peace sign. Biden. America. Yeah. I would assume you've mistyped. You were trying to make a note to yourself, and you accidentally sent it to me. <laughs> yeah, like this was not us actually trying to communicate with aliens. This was us testing a uh, a radar station, but it was intentionally directed towards space. So this was the mm-hmm. first um, message that we like on purpose sent out of Earth's atmosphere. The first thing that we did ever send out of Earth's atmosphere uh, was a, a video transmission. Do you know what it was? Oh, I feel like I've heard of it, but it's, it's not, not good. What it's is not it? Good. It's it's a, it's an early Hitler address. Oh, God. Um, and that is <laughs> one of the first televised things in the world. Uh, and those light waves got carried out of our yeah. atmosphere. And that is now going to be the first thing First impressions uh, that anyone can, can possibly encounter. We drop the ball. Earth. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> so now we have to send a lot of messages intentionally so that they don't think we're all a bunch of uh, bigoted yeah. assholes. We, we, get, we better be pretty strategic with what we're doing next here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we should talk, we're going to talk about this at the end of the episode, but there are a, a lot of really nuanced and delicate sociological issues that Mm -hmm. go into the messages we're sending out. Like, who gets to decide what we're saying? Who gets to decide how humanity is represented um, and what biases are going to be worked into that message because Mm -hmm. every human carries their own implicit bias, no matter how hard they try to get rid of it? Right. Oh, so important. We'll talk about that later. Next, I want to talk about our our second big attempt to communicate with aliens. Um, Well, maybe this is our, our first real attempt to put together something that aliens might see. Uh, This is in 1972 with the Pioneer Missions. Did you talk about the Pioneer Missions at your space center? We did. I remember that was like our intro into the Golden Record. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, Yeah. So in 1972, there were these two spacecraft that we were going to send to the outer solar system to study Jupiter um, and the other stuff beyond the midpoint of our solar system. And before they launched, they realized that in order to get these spacecraft to the outer solar system, they were going to have to move at a speed that they realized was faster than the escape velocity of the solar system. So these uh, Pioneer spacecraft were the first things that humans built that would be fast enough to overcome the gravity of our sun and the other planets in the solar system, cool. which, is a, which is a big deal. Like that is a, a feat of human ingenuity. That was Pioneer 10 in 1972 and Pioneer 11 in 1973. Um, and so they were talking about this in the lead up to the launch. This is going to be the first thing to ever reach uh, solar system escape velocity. And they were doing press conferences. They were doing tests of launch simulations that were open to not necessarily the public, but at least to media. And at one of those test simulators, uh, a couple months before the launch, there was a journalist uh, named Eric Burgess who was a journalist with the Christian Science Monitor for some reason. Um, He went to one of these tests, and it occurred to him that this might be a good, and I quote, first emissary to send out of the solar system. This is going to be the first thing from humanity that, like, truly extra solar things might, might be able to see. So he took the idea of a message to aliens, to Carl Sagan. I think like there were a couple degrees of separation there, but eventually it got to Carl Sagan 
Sagan took it to NASA. Again, this is like two months before Pioneer is supposed to launch. Um, and NASA goes like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Get working on that message. And so <laughs> Carl Sagan, uh, Frank Drake, um, and a couple other people worked together to figure out what information would go on this message. And the message ended up being uh, the Pioneer plaque. It was this sheet of metal. Um, it's aluminum with gold plating on top of it. Um, it's like six inches by nine inches wide with a like a very thin depth. And they attached it to the side of the Pioneer spacecraft and just put like pretty basic information about who humans are and where Earth is. Um, so I have a list of things that are on the Pioneer plaque. The first and and like the thing that the Pioneer plaque is known for is an image of two naked humans. Uh, there's yep. a naked man uh, on the left side and his arm is up with his palm out like he's waving and you can see peen, see peen <laughs> and scrote. You can see both. Um, it's the carved. full image. And he's waving. I don't know why I didn't like think. I don't remember the wave, but of course the wave yeah. is there. Yeah, he is waving. And then next to him is a naked woman. Um, so you can see peen on the man. You cannot see volve on the woman. It's very I don't know Barbie. why I'm shortening everything to one <laughs> syllable, but I, I'm going to roll with it. You cannot see it. Yeah, You're it's right. very it's Barbie. Barbie. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it. Also, the woman is just like standing there with her arms down to her sides, whereas the man is active and waving. And when you look at the reasoning and justification that Sagan and, and Drake gave for it, they said that they wanted to show that humans are flexible and we like come in different sizes and shapes. But also, like yeah. there is there is that like sexism like inherent in their yeah. decision making process. It's also like clearly white people. Yep. So yes. <laughs> I mean you're right. We come in male female, I guess, if you're thinking in like the most I mean, and they were thinking the most like binary cis hetero uh -huh. like terms. They truly um, were. But okay, I guess this is what we need to show the aliens. Mm-hmm. This is what <laughs> our naked bodies look like this is a this is a two-dimensional representation of what some of our naked bodies might look uh -huh. like inaccurately right? yeah <laughs> i mean so i guess like if aliens were to come down we would all be in clothes i guess it would be weird to show clothes too i i don't know what the thinking is here well, Corinne, all I'm hearing now is that if we want to make the most welcoming environment for our future alien visitors, we need to establish Earth as a global nudist community now. Yeah, maybe that was this is a dog whistle for like alien nudist communities. <laughs> Carl Sagan and Frank Drake actually just wanted all of humanity to be naked. There was an agenda here, clearly. <laughs> it's not what you think it is, but yes, there was an agenda. Um, so that's that's like the the biggest image on the pioneer plaque. And when I in my head picture the pioneer plaque, that's what I envision the the naked people. But there's also again a two dimensional representation of a hydrogen atom transitioning to a new energy state. Um, and the reason they chose the hydrogen atom is because it's the most abundant element in the universe. It um, was the first one formed after the Big Bang, and it is the first element on our periodic table. So when the team was trying to figure out like what information is relevant, how do we try and come up with 
a universal language, what they landed on was science and math, like trying to break mm-hmm. things down into into the most fundamental basic ideas. Uh, and the most fundamental element is hydrogen. So they have this representation of hydrogen doing uh, an energy state transition. And that gives them a standard distance and time measurement. Um, mm-hmm. So the distance comes from the wavelength of light the wavelength of the photon that is emitted when hydrogen does that transition. That is one of the most famous transitions that human astronomers study. <laughs> it is the 21 centimeter neutral hydrogen uh, line. And so 21 centimeters is that standard length that the Pioneer plaque has. And then the time is the period of that transition of that light wave. So it's 0.7 nanoseconds. And they they use uh, 21 centimeters and 0.7 nanoseconds as like the base unit of time for all of the other information that they're trying to convey with the pioneer plaque. So oh. the woman has, and it's not even clear, like as a human who understands how we represent information visually, even I would not get this from looking at the pioneer plaque. But the woman's height is shown between these two tick marks as eight times the standard length. So the idea is supposed to be that this woman is eight times 21 centimeters tall. Um, oh. It's I don't think it's very clear. I <laughs> feel like I can never be trusted with <laughs> advising numbers. Like even just, I think of other currencies and I'm like, well, that makes no sense. Like clearly mm. the way the US is doing it makes sense, which is like, is not true. It's just the way I'm fluent. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so I have to think that a code, some alien code breaker will understand this, but I mm-hmm. will certainly never solve it. I, I think that there are a lot of assumptions going into this. Yeah. Um, and and you, you have to make a lot of assumptions, right? But there is a school of like linguistics and psychology and sociology that tries to figure out how you come up with messaging that lasts a long time, like for radioactive regions how do you communicate to people a thousand years in the future who don't who probably don't speak your language how do you communicate that that's a dangerous area and that's mm. how they came up with the radioactive symbol. symbol yeah like there's a whole school of thought around that and i feel like they didn't fully take advantage of it when making the pioneer plaque that's just yeah. that's just my two cents you know mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay so we have the hydrogen atoms we have the naked people Um, And then we have a pulsar map to show where we are in space. Again, making a lot of assumptions about how aliens are going to, uh, like, take in this information on the plaque. So um, it looks just like a bunch of spiky lines coming out from a central point, the pulsar map. Mm -hmm. But it shows our location with respect to a bunch of different pulsars in space. And they identify the specific pulsars by also writing down in binary code um, the period of the pulsar. Okay, And that's supposed to tell the aliens where we are, but also when we are, because the pulsars periods do change over time. So if you have an alien species that has been studying pulsars for a long time and has kept a record of the pulsars periods over time, then the aliens might be able to backtrack to figure out where we were (laughs) and Mm -hmm. when we sent this message. (laughs) Oh, I see, I see. 
They're like, um, this pulsar, let's call the pulsar Steve. This pulsar Steve, you know, currently has a period of, you know, like it rotates once every nanosecond, but this alien species has a record of Steve's rotation rate for the last like thousand years. <laughs> and they're uh-huh. just gonna go and cross and reference. cross check, exactly. Oh, I know uh, when this was sent. Exactly, yeah. So uh, again, is, does this make much sense? If you're I mean, act- actually trying to communicate with aliens, I don't think so. But yeah, I it's one of those things where I'm like, well, I'm sure they'll figure it out. <laughs> they'll figure it out. Um, and then we have the solar system map. Um, so the sun and all of the planets. It was sent before Pluto was demoted. So it includes Pluto um, <laughs> and their distances from the sun. Uh, I should say that because the... The primary goal of the Pioneer spacecraft was to study the outer solar system. It wasn't sent specifically to any other star or any other like cluster of things. Um, so it is just going to be like in a random spot in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it left our solar system in like the 90s. And okay. now it's just in a random part of space. And they knew that when they put the Pioneer plaque on it. They weren't expecting specific aliens to find it um so they just put the plaque on in case any aliens who are traveling through the galaxy happen to just stumble upon it Mm -hmm. yeah this was this was like our first real attempt at putting together a an an artifact to describe humanity yeah i think i like what we chose to put i like the intention Mm. behind it but i have no idea or concept of if this is decipherable to yeah. anything else. Yeah, probably not. I agree with you. Yeah, the, the basics that they put on, like the categories of information, this is what we look like. This is where we are. This is where we sent this to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we know hydrogen exists, so we're like kind of scientifically literate. Like those mm-hmm. are the three pieces of information that are included on the Pioneer plaque. Mm-hmm. And that's good. That's probably a good list. Um, but then we go to uh, a couple years later, 1974, the Arecibo message, which I know we briefly talked about uh, a couple of times, but but there's a lot here. It's a really cool message. Hey, this is Moya. Corinne wanted to see what it was like to chat around an old-timey office water cooler, so I'm going to take this time to thank our amazing patrons who support this show with their money every single month. Thank you to our Sunlike stars, Sharn Llewellyn, Lissa, and Peyton. This quantum time travel coffee is so good, y'all, and I really hope that the pure hydrogen that fuels you as stars is just as delicious. I also want to thank our newest pre-main sequence star, Mark Jeffries, and to all of our existing patrons, thank you so much. We really appreciate your help in making this show because it takes money to make stuff these days, you know? Uh, But you can support us. You can hear your name on this pod, and you can make it to our patron star chart all by supporting us on Patreon for just about $1 per episode. And if you sign up for an annual membership, you actually get a 13% discount across an entire year. That's 1% for every constellation in the Zodiac. You can find our star chart and more Patreon info, plus other cool stuff at our website, palebluepod.com, or you can go right to patreon.com slash palebluepod to support us financially. Uh, We would really appreciate it, but if you can't uh, lend your money for whatever reason, we understand. 
Um, we've, we've been there. Uh, and we love you anyway. There are still other ways to support the show. You can rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Uh, you can share the show with your friends and other loved ones. Maybe your enemy will like it too. I don't know. Um, but share your favorite episode with some of your people in your life, and that is a great way to help us grow. All right, enough about us. Uh, I wanted to talk about something bigger than Pale Blue Pod. In case you didn't know, we are a member of Multitude, which is a collective of independent podcasts. All of Multitude's work, like the support that they give us in finding sponsors and even, uh, you know, fronting our editing costs for a while when we started out, all of that work is supported by the Multicrew, which is our exclusive member club. You can join this awesome club for as little as $5 per month and gain access to all kinds kinds of perks. You can hang out with the Multitude hosts and come to game streams or hangouts. Uh, that does include me and Corinne. We go to those hangouts regularly. Uh, you can also access our secret debate podcast called Head, Heart, Gut, which features all of the Multitude hosts. Um, every month there's a different theme and they pit the different Multitude hosts against each other in a, a very formal debate. It's all very serious over here <laughs> at Multitude. So you can join uh, the multi-crew at Multitude crew.club to support indie podcasts and gain these fun perks. And finally, before Corinne gets back, I have a message for you from one of our new sponsors. Indulge in the timeless pleasure of interconnecting tiny pieces of cardboard by assembling Ravensburger's Extraordinary Jigsaw Puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle-solving experience. With a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger's puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. A generation is like 20 years, so um, 140 years, yeah, that's, that's a lot of families. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends or by yourself. That's what I do as I try to push Cosmo away, um, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you can find a Ravensburger jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly because they have a wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts. So you can start small with 150 pieces, going all the way up to 40 thousand pieces. I don't even want to know what type of person hates themselves enough to do a 40,000 piece puzzle, but if that's you, then more power to you. Buy it at Ravensburger's Puzzles. Uh, you can shop Ravensburger at ravensburger.us or on Amazon. Just type in Ravensburger. It's, it's spelled exactly how you think it would be uh, in Amazon or online. So I hope you enjoy because I will. Have you heard of the Arecibo message outside I think of Pablo Pod? Okay. Yeah. Um, so in 1974, we sent a message with the giant Arecibo telescope. This was um, a big dish down in Puerto Rico, uh, 300 meters across. Wow. Yeah. Um, so three times as big, roughly, as the Green Bank Telescope that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Arecibo was huge. And this message was designed by Frank Drake with help from Carl Sagan. And it was sent to test uh, a new remodeled transmitter that they attached to Arecibo. Um, so kind of like the Morse message in the 60s, this was another test, but it was like, a very intentional test. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
really, we want to see if this transmitter works, but if we also happen to send a message to aliens, like, that's cool, too. It was Mm -hmm. a good bonus. The message itself was in binary code, so it was a sequence of ones and zeros that was sent with radio waves, and if the aliens knew how to, um, like, read it in to their alien computers, they could take that binary code message and put it into a simple image. Um, think very old 8-bit computer video game graphics. Like, that's yes. what it looks like. Yes, I just um, looked up a picture, and if you're a listener who's able to do it, you should. It's very... <laughs> it looks like I'm playing an arcade game. <laughs> it does. And this was cutting-edge science. Yep. We actually were sending this towards a specific target, a specific astronomical target. We sent it towards M13 or Messier 13, which is a cluster of stars on the outer edge of the Milky Way galaxy, about 21,000 light years away from us. M13 uh, is a globular cluster that has about 300,000 stars. Uh, So there are a lot of stars there that could potentially host life, uh, but it is close enough that we've studied M13 pretty well. That's one of the reasons they chose that as the target. Um, But the target is really far away. It's 21,000 light years away. So it's going to take 21,000 years for the message to get there. And by the time the message gets to where we sent it, M13 will have moved a little bit. Oh, no. So it it might still hit like the edge of M13, but it's not going to hit the center where they were aiming, um, which I think is hilarious. It really shows that, um, you know, in the grand scheme of the vast universe, light moves slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, Information moves slowly. The message was arranged very intentionally. It uh, is 1,679 bits of information. Uh, That number was chosen because it is semi-prime, meaning it's the the product of two prime numbers. So it's arranged in this matrix or an array. Uh, It's 23 columns by 73 rows. They're prime numbers because uh, they assume that aliens would be good enough at math and think of it in the same way that we do so they Mm -hmm. would know and care about prime numbers. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like I've heard that a lot in science talk or math talk about like the importance of that. And as someone who was never a math kid, I'm like, sure, if you say so. (laughs) Look. Mathematicians love to think that what they study is the purest form of of knowledge and information available. I I love looking at those uh, comic strips of different scientific disciplines thinking uh, that they're the most basic. And it starts with like chemistry uh, or biology, but that's just applied chemistry, which is just applied physics. And then like that's just applied math, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But math is something that we made up. We constructed it. We use this as a convenient tool to understand the quantities of stuff around us. It is not universal. (laughs) I feel like that's a line in Mean Girls where she's like, they're like, why do you like math so much? And Lindsay Lohan's character is like, Katie is like, oh, because every language does math. Or something yeah, like she's that. like she's. I think she says like because it's the same everywhere. And yes, yes. Like, it's not even the same everywhere on Earth. 
So uh, it's definitely not the same everywhere in the universe, but like, okay, sure. Let's call math the universal language. Sometimes I do get like a math-related TikTok on my like TikTok algorithm and I am like, oh, wow, that's so cool. But I never understood what they said. I'm just like, okay, you just said something to me very confidently and maybe that's all I need. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta watch out though because people on TikTok be confident all the time. I know, it's bad for me. I think I've done everything wrong. (laughs) I'm too sensitive to it. Oh, well, it's it's as long as you use it for fun. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, we assume that aliens are going to know and care about prime numbers and that if they see a message from us in prime numbers, they would be so impressed Mm -hmm. and um, know that we are also, like, in the math. No, whatever. Uh, So (laughs) those 1,679 bits encode seven different kinds of information, seven different, like, pieces of knowledge. The first in the top row are the numbers one through 10 written out in binary. Okay. Um, and, and then below that, the atomic numbers of the elements that make up DNA. So those elements are hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. And um, we put their atomic numbers. And then the, lo- the line below that is the formulas for the chemical compounds that make up DNA. So we were like, here are the atomic numbers for the stuff in DNA so you know what we're talking about. And then we're going to give you the formula for how they come together to make DNA. Mm -hmm. Nowhere in this is there enough space for them to actually say what DNA is or how it is used to make living creatures on Earth. But they're just like, no, here's here's DNA, alien who has no context for what... (laughs) What these things are? Questions, if you have. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, They they did say like this is the estimated number of DNA nucleotides in the human genome, and then they show like a little picture of the double helix structure for DNA. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you can't really do much with that information if this is all you. I'm also looking at the picture of this. I would never have guessed that was a double helix. Right? Yeah, because it's like. You know, if if you were playing Space Invaders, if someone tried to give you a lesson on DNA, but they were using a slideshow that looked like Space Invaders, yeah. you know, like that, that's what this is. And yeah. it, it's not very helpful or informative. <laughs> uh, and then <laughs> um, the physical height of an average man okay. is written down, um, which was 5'9 back then. Um a graphic figure of a human being. So you see that's supposed to be in red yeah. in the image that you're I looking at. Him. Just like a like a very blobby yes. person. A very normal, like, child stick figure kind. Yes, yes. And then the population of Earth, which at the time was roughly 4 billion. Okay. Uh, and then the line below that is a graphic of the solar system. So it has all the planets. And then the sun is like a... a cluster of a few dots and then each of the planets have their like is like one dot mostly Mm -hmm. but earth the third little dot from the big dot is uh raised a little bit so it's um closer to the picture of the human Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's supposed to be clear that we're saying like this is the one we're on (laughs) yes yes okay (laughs) and then below that is um, a little graphic depiction of the Arecibo telescope itself. Okay. 
So that big round purple thing oh. is supposed to be the Arecibo dish. But like, wh- how would you know that well, if you weren't reading the Wikipedia yeah. page like I am? It's a very big, like, I think today, if someone were to make a flyer that's this shape, that would be like where the logo goes or like where mm. the um, information about whatever arcade tournament this is <laughs> would go. <laughs> But I, it almost gives, it's almost larger, or it is slightly larger than the person, mm-hmm. which to me implies importance, where this is as important as the other things on this piece of info. And not that this telescope is not important, but I don't think the goal of this was to emphasize that. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. I think if anything, like showing the telescope at the bottom was like their attempt at saying like all of this information above like it came from the telescope like yeah yeah like if you look at the image as a whole it can generously be interpreted as this information being Mm -hmm. transmitted from the telescope and moving up in the image but like that makes sense that's a generous interpretation that is a generous and informed interpretation Mm -hmm. which is not what the aliens would have yeah i think this and the um the plaque i I'm so used to in my day-to-day work of, like, copywriting or design to think of, like, the hierarchy of text. Mm -hmm. And I think neither of these pieces contained that of, like, the (laughs) most important information might be the largest or whatever. And I don't know if an alien would be familiar with, like, best practices (laughs) in that way. (laughs) But my brain is, like, having a hard time parsing this. I love that this is bad um, information presentation, even from a human perspective. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Again, uh, I love the intent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, let's let's remind folks, this is in the 70s. This is 1974. So, yeah. you know, they, we've come far since then. Uh, so all of that, all of that information was sent with the Arecibo Telescope's um, brand spanking new megawatt transmitter. The emission itself was equivalent to a 20 trillion watt broadcast, um, and it was super narrowed. It was super focused, so you could send this very intense stream of information in a very specific direction mm-hmm. um, because they had this uh, this transmitter, which would bounce off of the the main dish of Arecibo and then be reflected back into space in a concentrated way. Uh-huh. In total, the transmission took less than three minutes. I mean, oh, you wow. You could um, receive these light waves in less than three minutes. It really wasn't that much information at all. It's less cool. than 1,700 bits. Cool. Yes. Um, and then, still in the 70s, this is when all this stuff happened. In 1977, we sent out the twin golden records on the twin Voyager spacecraft. I know you talked about this a lot. What what did you tell the kids about the golden record? Well, it was kind of folded in with the plaque uh, because I think the golden record did it include. Um, I know it had pictures of like it did have- humans, but yes. on the plaque it was engraved as something, right? Yes. Yeah. And was it engraved with the same? Oh, the same pulsar image that's on the plaque was on the golden record along with some new images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but not the naked people. Right, not the naked people, um, but I know we had pictures of humans in the images that were included yeah. in the, like... So is it a record, like a record for music that we would have? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes it is. It's a, it's like a golden... Well, it's made of copper with a, a gold finish on top. Um, one of the reasons we keep using gold in these 
things that are going to be sent into space is because it's good at um, maintaining its structure under extreme like temperature mm-hmm. changes. Like it's not going to be as affected by the harsh environment of space as other materials. Sure. Um, so it is a 12 inch record. It looks like a vinyl record um, and it, it is meant to be played. Uh, one of, so the, the cover of the golden record. It has that pulsar map. Um, it has the hydrogen transition thing again. And in the top left corner, it has instructions for how to play the record, which means we are expecting the aliens to have a record player. I love that. As they should. <laughs> As they should. Um, I was recently given many vinyl records and now i have to get a record player because i can't just display them and not play them in my apartment we have a ton of records actually but we do have a record player but they're not stored in the same spot so if (laughs) if i were to pick up a record and play it it's like okay now i have to find where the record player is (laughs) but there are some good ones that are bluetooth enabled so you could play music from your phone out of the speakers Oh, nice. But not without actually using the record. Okay, cool. I'll look into it. That's uh, tonight Moya's problem. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But to answer your question, yes, they are records um, that, and it's mostly music. I think this this project, the Golden Record, came out of seeing how people reacted to the Pioneer plaques. Sagan was involved again, Sagan and Drake. They wanted to do a... an updated version, something that really would be more of a time capsule of humanity to introduce any potential intelligent aliens to a a broad range of the human experience. So Sagan and Drake uh, worked with a folklorist, actually. His name is Alan Lomax. Alan Lomax was helping them figure out what information to include. Um, Like, you want to make sure you have a representative sample of earth sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was started with music, I think, because Sagan had a lot of friends who were musicians and composers. Um, Corinne and I were texting earlier today <laughs> because I found something in my research. I found this New Yorker article, and it was called, like, How the Golden Record Got Made. And it was by this man uh, named, I think, Timmy Ferris. And uh, he was... an music producer. He was one of the producers of the Golden Record. And there's this paragraph. This is a long tangent. I'm sorry. There's this paragraph (laughs) in the New Yorker article where Ferris says, um, you know, I was I was friends with Sagan. He came over to discuss with me and my then fiance, Andrewian, blah, 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 blah. And that like I saw that and I was like, wait, I thought Andrewian was married to Carl Sagan. And then I looked it up. And yes, so the the tea here is that Carl Sagan was married to a woman named Linda, and he was friends with this man named Timmy Ferris, who was engaged to a woman named Anne Druyan. Sagan and Linda got divorced in 1981, after this four years after the Golden Record was launched, um, and so for years he was working with Linda and. Timmy Ferris and Andrewian. Um, and then in 81, he divorced Linda, married Andrewian. And I just love all of that drama. Yeah, I want to know so much more about that friend group. If it was like cool with everyone, if it was so weird. You couldn't text back then. So when were people mm-hmm. getting to like share the mm-hmm. gossip? <laughs> Corinne, there's, there's extra drama and I will reveal it 
at the end of this section on the golden record. Um, but I think that that's important context for the listeners to know so that you'll also love the juiciness of, <laughs> of the, the like human drama behind the golden record. Uh, so, like I said, Sagan was working with this folklorist and he kind of had to persuade uh, Lomax to join the effort. And Sagan did so by writing to him saying, it is unlikely that many other artifacts of humanity will survive for so prodigious a period of time. Basically trying to tell him, like, this golden record is going to be around for billions of years. You have the potential to be the folklorist with the longest lasting legacy, mm-hmm. uh, which I would find pretty persuasive. So Lomax yeah. joined. Um, <laughs> the golden record was sound engineered by a, a little known man named Jimmy Iveen. I actually don't know who that is. Jimmy Iveen is one of the most um, like successful music producers of all time. Um, I think he may have helped Dr. Dre like start his record label. He's worked with most of the big artists in history. He was recommended to the Golden Record team by John Lennon. Oh my gosh. Does that mean John <laughs> Lennon turned down the job? <laughs> uh, John Lennon turned down a couple ways of being involved with the Golden Record. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get a Beatles song okay. to be one of the songs that they put on it, but they ran into licensing issues. I think the who whoever had like the Beatles copyright, they wanted to charge $50,000 per record, which is a shit ton of money in 1977. Yeah. Um, $100,000 to play Here Comes the Sun on the Golden Record. So they were like, no, never mind. No. We're, <laughs> we're not going to do that i feel like um, they should donate it to science should, i i agree who's I playing agree. it even it's not like there's <laughs> there's a chance that nothing will listen to this so. <laughs> uh, but i i for one of my uh new jobs i have been learning a lot about copyright law lately and even if it isn't played again just the fact that it was reproduced on the record is a violation of copyright law without the proper license yeah, yeah, I stand at the writers and the actors and anyone who gets residuals. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so I yes, get we it. do. <laughs> um, okay, so all of that is to say that there's a lot of drama behind the, the Golden Record and there are some big stars associated with it. Um, but it is mostly music with some images. Uh, so there are 115 images that are encoded onto the Golden Record. There's an image of the solar spectrum. There's a picture of a woman breastfeeding. There are these very obviously 1970s men in their tiny little shorts at the start of some sort of racing line. Apparently there's a picture of a live birth. There are pictures of sand dunes and other um, scenes on Earth. There's a picture of the Taj Mahal. So they really just gathered what they thought uh, or what they felt was a representative sample of scenes of, of like sites that you might see around Earth. And they actually had to, NASA had to create a new method of um, encoding images onto like essentially a vinyl record. Cool. Um, that didn't exist before. Um, and on these vinyl records, there's only so much uh, information space you have. Um, that information space is nowhere near enough to hold the amount of information required for one image today. Uh-huh. Um, so essentially what they did was project the image onto a screen, record it with a television camera, um, which is a, a special type of camera that can take in images and, I guess, 
translate them to other types of information so they can send it to the station, uh, like the TV station or the polls or something. I I don't know how TV works, but (laughs) they have this special television camera um, that took the visual information and transposed it into audio waves. And then they took those audio waves and encoded that onto the record. So it's 115 images as audio waves. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, in my research notes for this episode, I have an article that says how that was done and also a blog by someone who tried to like back engineer and like, I guess, see some of the images. Um, Mm -hmm that they put on on the golden record. So do that if you join the Patreon. There are 115 images, and then the rest is audio. They have greetings in 55 different languages, starting with Akkadian, uh, which is one of the earliest languages that we know about from humanity. It was spoken in Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago, at least. So starting with that and then going up to a very recent dialect of um, Chinese called Wu, Um, and 53 other languages in between. There are earth sounds, so the sound of rain, of a wildfire, of crickets and other animals, of a train going by, of someone riding in a tractor, like (laughs) a bunch of different earth sounds. And then um, 90 minutes of music from around the world, Uh, lots of classical stuff, but like, you know, world music from different countries, which I I think is really cool. And that's probably a lot of what Lomax helped them with, is identifying these songs that Sagan wouldn't have been familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then there is an hour of Anne Druyan's brainwaves. Um, So they hooked up monitors and electrodes to her brain and recorded her waves, her brainwaves, while she was thinking about Oh, there's a list here. While she was thinking about Earth's history, civilizations, and the problems they face, and, I quote, what it was like to fall in love. And the fact fact that she was doing this in, like, 1976, when five years years before she, uh, she marries Carl Sagan, like, was she telling the aliens about her starting this affair? Carl wow! Wow! I, I need hope to know. She was. I hope the aliens knew the, this whole time. Like the, they're like those humans are messy. Like, <laughs> like I love that all of these details that we want from this messy situation. The aliens probably have it. Yeah, and what's more human than that than sending our best drama? <laughs> oh, love it. Um, apparently, Sagan was pretty torn. He was conflicted about what we should show about humanity like should mm-hmm. we show our the more gruesome parts of our past all of the wars the genocides the um biases and prejudices that we have um he was against showing that he thought okay. it would give aliens a very hostile view of mm-hmm. of humanity and he didn't want that the team was split um and i think that Ultimately, it ended up not really being in there. Among all of these images and sounds, there's not much about war. Um, So they are cherry picking what information about Earth to send to these aliens, which brings in some really um, tricky moral issues, I think. Yeah, I'm torn on it. I kind of agree. I think that humans are not humans without all of these sides of us. 
Mm-hmm. But in the same way, I'm like meeting a new friend and not maybe not trauma bonding with them to start. <laughs> if I'm just like <laughs> letting them get to know me and getting to know them. Occasionally, I'm not revealing the worst sides yet, but I get I, it. I mean, honestly, I think when you actually meet a new person and you both trauma bond, like, fine. But this is like if you were starting a dating profile and you just trauma dumped on your profile <laughs> and expected to get a lot of matches from that. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, it's not, it's a it's a one-directional flood of personal information. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and you're hoping to get a response. I hope somebody. I can't believe I haven't gotten matched yet. I know. Nobody's interested. <laughs> um, so that was that was 1977, and then we didn't do much for 40 years. But on the 40th anniversary, uh, a group of people, including Andrian, who was now Carl Sagan's widow, um, they put together a very similar but larger project called A Message from Earth. It included a lot of similar stuff, sounds, images, but now we had uh, the technology to condense a lot more information into a smaller space. Um, So they did that. They sent it in a very concentrated radio beam towards a a specific exoplanet this time. This one was Gliese 581c. It was a super Earth, um, so a planet a little bit bigger than Earth, but smaller than Neptune. Um, It had been found the previous year in 2007, and at the time seemed like a good potential place of um, habitability. Now we have better um, mm-hmm. better options, but 2008. This is before we even launched the Kepler spacecraft, so yeah. we, we didn't know about a lot of planets. Um, and then there's just a bunch of other miscellaneous stuff that we have sent out into space. Uh, it's actually kind of difficult to keep track of all of the uh, transmissions, all of the physical stuff that we have sent out into space for METI, the Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, but there has been an effort to catalog all of that stuff um, by this, like, I don't even want to call them a nonprofit. I don't think they're officially recognized, but this group at, in a project called A Profile of Humanity. Um, and on that list, I found some other weird miscellaneous things that have been sent out into space intentionally, like a 2008 Doritos ad. We just, we, we beamed that out into Set space. Set it out. For some reason. Well, um, they should know about capitalism. <laughs> they should know about capitalism and the concept of, of a cool ranch. Yeah, you know? exactly. Send our best chip. <laughs> um, and then there was a 2010 invitation to a Klingon opera in <gasps> the Netherlands. Um, an opera performed in Klingon. The invitation was written in Klingon. And then sent out into space. All of this, despite the fact that um, Kronos, which is the canonically the Klingon homeworld, is not a real place. (laughs) And Klingons are not a real type of alien. But I like, were these people trying to invite the Klingons to a Klingon opera? I think they were. Also, I imagine the opera will have passed by the time (laughs) they get the message in RSVP. And hit, then get in the car and hit the road. <laughs> you are so correct, Corinne. There's there's a lot here that makes you think. Do they know huh. what they were doing? <laughs> like what? Um, Again, I love the I love the intent. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have sent uh, copies of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds and Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles on a CD 
to Mars. Um, Do so they know that it's about Mars? Well, it's to Mars. Okay. Because yeah, I'm like, it, remember the big drama where we put the War of the Worlds on the radio and people didn't know? <laughs> I don't know if we should just be sending that book out there. <laughs> no, no. And then um, th- this final one, there there are many more, um, but the one I selected to end on was uh, something called the Immortality Drive. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, kind of like a thumb drive of information uh, containing human DNA sequences of a few different people, including Stephen Colbert. Oh, that's uh, so, so his- funny. Because he is a known nerd. Um, Mm -hmm. So his DNA sequence is now out in space to be preserved and potentially found and replicated by any aliens out there. I love that. Mm -hmm. I hope he lives forever. Me too. Um, Yeah, so we've sent a bunch out. And overall, the reaction to Medi is kind of mixed. Mm -hmm. Um, there are many people who are like, yeah, awesome. Let's, let's find all the aliens. But there are a lot of people who are cautious because they, they think, you know, there's a good chance that aliens out there are going to be more, uh, technologically advanced than us. We don't know if they're going to be hostile. And a lot of people just assume that many of them will be, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people say it's a waste of time to try and, uh, communicate with aliens. Many of those people think that that's because there aren't aliens there to communicate with. Okay. Um, but there are also people who think it takes funding from other research that is more practical and important. Um, and then <laughs> there's a small group of people who say that SETI and Medi are cults um, and that okay. the, the people who are trying to find and communicate with aliens are actually just searching for, uh, and I quote, deities for atheists. Okay. Yeah, so, so there is some pushback, but overall, um, most people don't give a crap uh, about what we're actually doing um, in, in the sciences. So we are going to keep sending out our little radio transmissions. I hope we do. I like it. I mean, of course, no one wants to be immediately destroyed by an alien group, but I don't know. I saw a rival. Seems like it might could go well. It could go either way. They could be really nice. They yeah. could, um, you know, maybe they don't love us and want to collaborate with us or, like, work with us, but maybe they think of us as just, like, cute little... Yeah. Kittens, like maybe, like maybe, when you see a, like an axolotl out in the world, when you see a puffin or something, like mm-hmm. maybe we're puffins to an alien. Just like I don't know what They're that like is, cute. and I doubt it can actually do anything useful, but it's adorable. And they'll I take like to- boat tours to come yes. see us from afar. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be mad if Earth was just like a tourism stop on the. Um, cute creature. Yeah, as long as they <laughs> throw me toy. treats here and there, even though they probably says "Don't feed the humans," I'll take it. I'm imagining a little sign uh, out at like Neptune, yeah. uh, so that when aliens are entering our solar system, they're like, "Don't feed the humans." They're gonna get very confused. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Any any thoughts, reactions to to these messages? I love them. I really love the stuff in the Golden Record. I think the mm-hmm. images, they are on NASA for anyone listening who wants to check it out. Um, if you were to search, like, Voyager Golden Record images, you can scroll through a lot of them. Um, you can also hear a lot of the sounds that are there. But there's, like, I remember there's an image of a woman at a grocery store. And I love that. I just think it's so funny <laughs> that we included that. It's, like, 
the kind of day-to-dayness of our life, I think is so special to share. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing other, like a day in the life of other people. So I really like that we landed on sharing some of that. I agree. Is there anything, uh, any other information that you would want to have put on these like big um, first attempts at communication? I think we should have sent season two of The Real Housewives of New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) What a gold star Corinne answer. Yes. I really think that's one of the best, one of the best seasons of reality TV we have. And (laughs) it will make us seem like a hostile group, but (laughs) I'm hoping they can see the joy in it. (laughs) Fair. Oh, I love that. Um, I think if I had been designing these, I would have, especially with the with the Pioneer plaque, I would have pared back on the amount of information we gave mm-hmm. and broadened the way that information was communicated. Um, so yeah. especially with the Pioneer plaque, we are assuming that they can see. We're assuming that they yeah. are like that the way their consciousnesses interpret information would make sense in like a 2d representation you know so i like that we said where we were so i want to keep that i even kind of want to keep something that says like we know about math and science and Mm -hmm. maybe something about humanity like i would put the the gene stuff like the dna stuff on the pioneer plaque instead of the naked pictures Mm -hmm. um but all of that information Presented in different ways. Like, yes, show the drawing, but then also find a way to like communicate that with, I don't know, magnetic fields or, um, or scent or like include scent. Like, I don't know, like we don't know what senses the aliens will have. So we don't know how they'll be able to perceive and take in information. Yeah. Um, I think you and I touch on this a bit when we do movie reviews where, where there are aliens and we're kind of complaining, like, all the aliens look like people, but with, like, an alien face. Yeah. Um, but I think that's what we're getting at, of, like, we don't know what we don't know, and this could be anything. Anything. I mean, ultimately, it's kind of a ridiculous exercise, right? Um, even, like, a dolphin on Earth would not be able to, like, understand what this was. I don't um, know. Dolphins got pretty smart. But they don't take in information the same way we do. Like, I, I no, chose dolphins don't. because they are intelligent. But They're they, not reading the cut. Th- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that is my biggest gripe with um, with the Pioneer plaque and the Golden Record. Yeah, I respect that. Yeah. Um, I would also, you know, in, in the next generation of big sound repositories that we send out into space, obviously the entire Pale Blue Pod back catalog. Oh. Yeah, of course. Every Needs to be is going there. And little, instead of the man and the woman, it's me and you. Ah! Wearing clothes. <laughs> wearing clothes. Well. Maybe I'm wearing, like, my dream item. Like, the thing I'll never afford. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, we can show the, the range of fashion. You can be in your, like, dream outfit. <laughs> I'm going to be there um, in my astronaut suit um so they actually won't be able to see my face or my body but (laughs) but you will see little curls peeking out the bottom of the the bottom Mm -hmm. yeah exactly (laughs) let's just confuse the aliens uh well then i think i want to go take a stab at one of those old timey um typewriters that's what they're called i want to go to my typewriter I want to get like an egg cream or whatever these people ate in this (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's go to a malt shop and see yes. how our quantum time machine produces an average of all of the malt beverages from the yes. 1930s to the 1950s. Exactly. <laughs> all right, listeners. Then whatever uh, time period your beverage is from, remember, you are space. Bye. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.